I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the case against free will. Behavioral scientist Robert Sapolsky argues that who we are, what we'll become, or indeed how we appear, is determined by genes, biology, environment, and completely beyond our control. You've got screwy genetic luck. You've got one version of a receptor for one of these hormones, and you are going to be obese. It's out of your control, but most people still are mired in a free will interpretation of obesity. And absent of free will, how should society tackle crime and punishment? If you follow this out to its logical extreme, something like the criminal justice system, the entire system has to be trashed because it's predicated on the notion that it is okay to treat some people way less better than average because of things they had no control over. Determinism versus free will. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to determining what we'll do in our lifetimes, what job we take, where we live, or how we'll interact with the world, the assumption is that the decision is ours, that we're masters of our own destiny. Whether we're good or bad, work hard or slack off, we live in a world that rewards and praises those who achieve greatness and punishes or blames those who fall by the wayside. And while that may sound right, just how much control do we actually have? Turns out advances in scientific and behavioral research show we may be less autonomous than we like to think. Environment, genes, hormones, culture, childhood, even the nine months spent in our mother's womb have a far greater impact on how we behave and the choices we make. It's a provocative and somewhat mind-boggling argument that gets to the heart of our identity and individualism. But researcher and writer Robert Sapolsky sees it as incredibly liberating. Robert Sapolsky is professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University, and author most recently of Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Robert Sapolsky, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Well, thanks for having me on. I take it that this is a debate, the idea of determinism, that that likely goes back further than just your book. Was this something that that you had been personally thinking about or that your research had been leading you to? Where was your personal fascination with trying to understand this? Well, I was actually 14 when I decided there's no free will (laughs) at all. Okay, Um, it sounds like a precocious 14-year-old or a very stubborn one. It it, it just, it, it actually, it was very strange. I was sort of wrestling with a very personally tumultuous religious contradiction. I was Mm. being raised very, very observantly religious and was really in it for the whole nine yards. Um, And this unsolvable, very personal contradiction had come up and it was turmoil and all of that. And then one night at two in the morning, I woke up out of nowhere. And my thought was, oh, I get it. There's no such thing as God. Hmm. And then I paused about five seconds and said, oh, and there's no free will. And paused about another five seconds and thought, ah, and there's no meaning to anything. And it's a vast, empty, and different universe. Wow. Uh-huh. And it was just kind of all in place at that point and has been there ever since. Now, it's so interesting. Like when I hear that, I can't, I, I can't help but think that sounds kind of nihilistic, right? Like, was there meaning to anything? Why are we here? Is that how it felt as a, as a 14-year-old? Um, 
Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically it, it, it left sort of a fairly large existential void that I have not done a particularly effective job at filling in the, in the decade since then. Yeah. But I mean, what, what I ultimately like wind up arguing, I think in some ways the thing that saved me from being too despairing to finish the damn book after working on it for years and years um, was finally figuring out that there was a punchline other than tough luck, this is how things work, suck it up. Nobody said like the nature of life was going to be cheery or whatever until eventually getting to a mindset where by now, I'm convinced, in fact, that if people stop believing in free will, this would be a much better world. Yeah. Well, let's let's come back to that in a little bit. But I wanna I wanna work through how you came to the argument of determinism. So, I, you have I mean a lot of research in the field of of behavior. But but talk to us about how you began to like open this subject up and really look at it. Well, essentially, all that's happened since I was 14 was my just adding some factoids here and there, factoids which turn out to create a picture of where behavior comes from, where it is deterministic in a way where free will winds up being a myth. I mean, sort of the whole notion, neuroscience cannot disprove free will. Genetics cannot disprove free will. Endocrinology can't do it. Evolutionary theory, child development, etc., etc. But put all the pieces together and you can. Because you look at somebody does something, they behave, they do something wonderful, they do something awful, and they do something ambiguous, whatever. And you say, oh, why did they do that? And it turns out it's due to a whole sort of hierarchy of questions because half a second ago, these neurons fired and those neurons went silent. But because a minute or an hour ago, this internal state of the person, they were hungry, tired, scared, whatever, influenced those neurons. And because that morning's hormone levels were influencing how the brain was responding to that internal state and the trauma from last year and the self-control you did or didn't learn as an adolescence and childhood and fetal life, which turns out to have a huge amount to do with how your brain is constructed and what makes you, you in this moment. Mm. And then genes. And then amazingly, culture, what sort of culture your ancestors were coming up with five centuries ago, and parentheses, uh, what sort of ecosystem made that culture more likely to have been invented? Where does culture come in? Because within minutes of birth, that was shaping how your mother was mothering you. Mm. In other words, how your brain was being constructed. And you put all those pieces together and it stops being what I was saying a minute ago or so, which is, ooh, you put all these different disciplines together and collectively they show free will as nonsense. You put them all together and they become one discipline. For example, you're trying to figure out what genes have to do with behavior. If you're talking about genes, by definition, you're talking about the millions of years over which they evolved. And... By definition, you're talking about someone's childhood when those genes were epigenetically programmed by experience to do this or that forever after. And you're talking about the proteins those genes specified 20 minutes ago. And when you see it's all this seamless sort of arc of biology over which you had no control, interacting with environment over which you had no control, 
there's simply no cracks in the edifice there in which you could shoehorn in free will. Mm. There's a lot of important disciplines that you just mentioned there, but luckily we have a little bit of time to explore, you know, a handful of them that you think are really crucial for us to understand. So um, could you just pick one, for example, you talked about what happens, say, as a very young child, or maybe, you know, when you're being conceived by a mother in those early, those early minutes or hours of childbirth, or maybe it's, it's neuroscience, but can you pick one and maybe go a little bit further into it? Maybe one you think that's particularly important here? Sure. The one that, that sort of catches people most off guard, unless they have a pregnancy going on in their nearby vicinity or internally, in which case they get incredibly anxious that this is actually the case. But what's going on in the outside world is having an enormous impact on a fetus. You're in there and, you know, the truism environment begins at birth is not the case in the slightest. Environment begins at conception because you then spend nine very intimate months like inside your mother. You spend nine months sharing bloodstream with her, sharing a lot of the sensory environment. Okay, we already know this in like a totally unsubtle sledgehammer way. If your mother was drinking huge amounts of alcohol while she was pregnant with you, you will have fetal alcohol syndrome. Your brain will have been constructed in a way that you will pay for this severely for the rest of your life. And it's, this is not subtle. Everyone can agree on this. But then more subtle things. If you were stressed in a particular way prenatally, um, there's a significantly increased risk of schizophrenia 20 years later. If you were stressed in a way where your mother was secreting elevated levels of stress hormones because, oh, I don't know, two days to pay the rent and there's not enough money or you're a refugee or any such thing, if you spend pregnancy pickling in your mother's stress hormones, which get into you and your brain very readily, you're going to have epigenetic changes in your brain, permanent regulatory changes, so that as an adult, you're more prone towards anxiety and clinical depression. And one part of your brain is going to be bigger than average. This is not subtle. This is not like, ooh, two or three neurons are going to be a little bit more like this. Like a whole part of your brain is going to be bigger than it would have been otherwise. And that's a part of the brain having to do with fear and anxiety and aggression. And as a result, when you're an adult, you're going to see stressors that other people don't, and your stress hormone levels are going to be elevated. Mm. To me, there are a lot of interesting echoes right now when we look at what's happening around us scientifically and culturally. You talk about obesity, for example, and I think there's a big change with a lot of these new drugs coming online that the argument has changed that, for example, obesity was a question of, was it a question of kind of like weak morality and work ethic, or was it really a question of genetics? And I, I see that playing out a lot. I think questions around addiction are very similar to what you're saying, that um, we, we now know that if your parent was an alcoholic or grandparent, you have a much higher chance of being an alcoholic as well. But I think these are arguments that we are seeing now, albeit they're, they're coming online kind of slowly at their own due time. But would you agree that maybe some of this stuff is entering the mainstream, albeit slowly? Um, 
a little bit, a little bit. Um, one, one clarification, you're absolutely right, say the genetics of anxiety. Um, one person may be more likely to wind up with an anxiety disorder because of family genetics, and we understand some of the nuts and bolts of that one, but it's a gene-environment interaction in the sense that I was just talking about. If you have a genetic proclivity towards anxiety mm. and your environment the fetal environment we were just talking about, if that environment included a whole lot of stress hormones, you get this synergistic thing going on. So you're more likely to wind up with adult anxiety um, than if you only had the gene or you only had the prenatal environmental experience, put them together and you got a double whammy. This is, this is the most typical picture about how genes affect behavior. It's interacting in some way with an environment. But in terms of like your question, has this become more common thinking to people that you know there's there's mechanistic bases and there's things that we do that we're not responsible for absolutely people have made enormous strides with this people have figured out that if there's horrible disastrous weather it's not due to the old lady at the edge of the hamlet who doesn't talk to anyone. There's no such thing as witches. People have figured out that witchcraft is not biologically supportable as a worldview, and we've subtracted responsibility for the weather out of how we judge people. Whoa, we've made incredible progress. We don't burn people at the stake anymore for that. We've made less progress in other realms. And I think the fact that you brought up obesity is a great example of that. There's this whole world now of implicit biases, and there's these, these brilliantly interesting uh, psychological tests you can take that can reveal what your implicit biases are. And very encouragingly, over recent decades, people's biases about people as a function of race and age and religion and round up all the usual have been steadily decreasing, which is wonderful, except for one domain, which is implied implicit bias about obesity has been increasing throughout. And then you get something like you got one world of explanation, like this is somebody with terrible self-control and self-indulgence. And if you have a psychological orientation, you can even speculate the person hates themselves. And this is why they're eating themselves into this state. And, all. and then along comes a hormone, which you secrete when you're eating which gets into a brain hormone called leptin. And it has something to do with telling the hypothalamus you've eaten enough. And that turns out to be the tip of the iceberg of a whole bunch of these satiation related hormones and receptors for them. And you've got screwy genetic luck. You've got one version of a receptor for one of these hormones of a type that's not very responsive. And you are going to be obese. And every member of your family that has that gene winds up being that way. And it's out of your control. And the world is still sitting there saying, ooh, I wonder if they unconsciously hate themselves. This is one of the areas where you see the sort of sharpest, you know, knife point of people whose lives are being made worse qualitatively because we see control where there, where there isn't. Because this is an area we've managed to figure out there aren't witches who control the weather, mm. but most people still are mired in a free will interpretation of obesity. Mm. Um, 
You mentioned how important also just culture is in this debate, um, that, you know, a child is born and parents are going to parent in a way that's, you know, congruent with the world around them or their friends, or a child will, you know, be brought into a world and will be exposed to whatever is around them via media or food choices or whatever it is. Can, can you go into that a bit as well? Like, how, how important is that? Because I think we think about that maybe as a little bit softer than some of the more genetic sciences that you're talking about yeah and when you look and you throw statistics and analyses these are hugely important variables like culture culture mothers are mothering differently within minutes of you being born here's Mm. here's an example like you go study cross-cultural differences in parenting and the one that always gets trotted out sort of the the strongest one out there is the difference between what are called collectivist cultures and individualist cultures collectivist cultures 99 percent of the studies are done on rice growing communities in southeast asia where Everything is collectivist. The entire village has to come out to plant your crop and your field, your your floodplain field. And the next day you all go to the next person's field. And then after that, and four months later, they all come out and they do the harvesting. And then you get like the poster child for individualist cultures, us, the West, particularly the United States, where you get a completely different mindset. And then you look at like enormously subtle stuff. And okay, so where do the differences come in terms of mothering? Mm. Something as amazing as like how loud on the average do individualistic culture mothers sing lullabies to their babies versus collectivist cultures? Collectivist cultures don't sing as loud. Wow, that's amazing. This is not earth shattering, but what is, is how long does a baby cry in each of these cultures on the average until they're picked up? How long do they sleep next to their mother before they're put in a bed or a room all on their own? At what age are they nursed if they're nursed at all? Starting like again, like your first day after birth, you're already being influenced by the culture that your mother was brought up in. And this winds up, there's differences and incidences of antisocial violence and incidences of the forms of different psychiatric disorders in different cultures. Like, yeah, we've got massive cultural differences and they make for different brains. It's it's hard for me not to imagine that you see some uh, some positives in places outside of America when we look at how a human is formed. Am I am I picking that up correctly? Well, I'm glad I was nursed that my mother of her place and time sort of countered 1950s American culture mm. and. The, the lesson of cross-cultural anthropology, cross-cultural psychiatry, cross-cultural anything is like your version of what counts as intuitively obvious as normal is not going to stand up to close observation because the variety of ways in which people think it is intuitively obvious that this is how you go about life is like endless. And that's, that's always a good humility lesson for anyone who's a little bit jingoistic about their own culture. Mm. I'm not sure this is a question you set out to answer, but, but I am just curious about the, the, the American psyche, or really the American identity, which does seem to be the most individualistic, that, that I agree with you on. Like yeah. how, 
how deeply interwoven in us is that? I mean, I, I, I sense we could go back to early ideas of why this country was founded or certain religious principles or philosophic ones about, uh, you know, about freedom, but it does seem to be quite, quite pronounced in America, doesn't it? Um, yes, and it makes perfect sense. Um, this is a country that's peopled by like the cranks and the malcontents and the troublemakers and the outgroup members from like every culture scattered over this planet who like wound up getting out and deciding I am individualistic enough to decide ooh, things look bad, I'm getting out of here, and to be willing to leave your loved ones behind and get on a boat or a mm. canoe or a ship or whatever and leave home and never go back there again and wind up in this country that's made up of like these highly individualistic, like irritatingly self-oriented <laughs> people who got there because, okay, here's, here's like one of the greatest examples of where like genetics and evolution and environment and all of that interact. So we got this neurotransmitter dopamine hmm. and dopamine has lots to do with reward and anticipation and motivation. And turns out there's different subtypes of receptors for dopamine and different flavors of them, different ice cream flavors. And there's one version that happens to be associated with you need a big dopamine signal to get some sort of oomph getting through there and feeling like you're really getting that anticipation. What is this variant associated with risk taking, impulsiveness, novelty seeking, all of that, and it maps onto all sorts of behavioral things. Okay, so that's totally cool. So there's this variant, and what's its distribution across the world? And out comes the most amazing finding, which is the further your ancestors migrated 50, 60, 90 million years ago from Africa, mm the higher the likelihood it is that you have this variant. You see the lowest variant of this type in Africa, the Middle East slightly higher in Western Europe, in sort of South Asia, and then a higher rate by the time you're getting up to like Siberia and Kamchatka. And then you know that 20,000 years ago, you know, if you were indigenous to the United States 20,000 years ago, you had some ancestors where everybody had just gotten to Siberia and said, this looks like a great place to raise the kids and settle down there. But no, this subset had ants in the pants and said, oh, let's see what there is over this, like, you know, land bridge right. going over to the new world. And you instantly have a higher incidence when you get to the Western Hemisphere indigenous populations and then you look at the highest rates and they're in south america this is how itchy were your ancestors that has something to do with like where they migrated to and where you grew up on this planet that's a measure of just like culture interacting with itchiness have you come up with a nomadic culture have you decided well you know it's kind of too long that we've been sitting around here these these fields for the goats to eat grass on are nice but my god i'm gonna scream if we have one more day of foraging here why don't we all just pick up and see what's over on the next continent there and that's like an amazing example of culture and genes and ecosystems and all of that into making us who we are. Mm. And one of the most interesting things about that 
is you look at the frequency of this variant of this gene for this dopamine receptor and its distribution and it follows that pattern like to an impressive extent until there's one place on earth where you see that there was very strong evolutionary selection in the last couple of thousand years against that version of the gene against people who have novelty seeking and sensation seeking where is that in southeast asia as soon as people arrived there and started working out like big collectivist rice farming or whatever, there was tremendous selection against this gene variant. So there's this one pocket there where you see a much lower incidence. And that's totally cool. Culture mm. and ecology and evolution and genes and construction of your brain. All this stuff is just intertwined in incredibly cool ways which when you try to take them apart, once again, there's no room to have in there some sort of me sitting around in your brain that's like made of different stuff that's somehow separate of all of this. And if you're just joining us on Life Examined, my guest is Robert Sapolsky, and we're discussing his new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. We'll be back with part two after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard Robert Sapolsky explain why neuroscience, genetics, evolutionary theory, and child development, in conjunction with each other, can help us better understand why there's no such thing as free will. We'll now jump into what the implications of this argument could be, whether it's the criminal justice system, our sense of self, or how we judge others. Let's jump back in. One thing that you're really, really interested in is, for example, how this plays out in criminal justice. Like, if we really, really believe this, and I, obviously you make a really compelling argument, how do we begin to kind of uh, say, well, who, who's responsible for what crimes? Or the understanding that maybe, you know, somebody pulled the trigger, but when you look at the causal events that led up to that, it tells us a story that maybe they weren't in control. So let's work through some of these, I think, really important moral questions together. Good, because, you know, what you just focused in on Let, let's let's take one of these circumstances where for most people intuition screams free will you have somebody who formed an intent to pull a trigger trigger and shoot the clerk during the robbery or whatever they formed an intent and for most people what they want to know at that point is was it a conscious intent uh, did the person know what the likely outcome of their actions was going to be? And did they recognize they didn't have to do this, they had alternatives? And if the answers are yes to that, for most people, our intuition is, yeah, the person had free will, they right. should be held responsible. And what all of that ignores is what 99% of it is. How did that person develop that intent? How did they become the sort of person who had that intent? And that's where the neurobiology of one second ago and hormones of this morning and fetal life and all of that come in. And when you really take this, you know, we choose when we have intent, but we can't choose what we choose. We can't intend to do something different from what we intend. And that's where you wind up seeing if you walk through the implications of this, praise and blame and reward and punishment make no sense whatsoever as virtues in and of themselves. And the only like intellectually and ethically 
like rational thing to do is there's no room for any of that stuff in this world oh my god okay i admit right here i know i'm out on the lunatic fringe of even scientists who question you know just how much free will there is out there but if you follow this out to its logical extreme something like the criminal justice system don't tell me like some nice liberal npr reform thing of let's make sure you know people get a little bit of job training there or whatever the entire system has to be trashed because it's predicated on the notion that it is okay to treat some people way less better than average because of things they had no control over and holding up a mirror at the exact same time every meritocratic system has to be trashed also because we have a world where we treat a whole bunch of people way better than average for reasons they had nothing to do with oh my god that's crazy what's the world supposed to look like what people immediately like the, the first one is oh if you like have people thinking there's no free will and thus there's no responsibility people are just going to run amok mm -hmm. because we can't be held responsible and there's science that has examined this by now and what it shows is if you take somebody and you psychologically manipulate them uh, so they believe a little bit less in free will they're likely to be like crummy antisocial creeps they're more likely to cheat in an economic game in the half hour afterward whoa on that you build the entire universe falling apart when you look however at people who for a long time have not believed in free will who show up for your experiment not needing some psych manipulation to believe in a little bit less but someone who comes in and says yeah i haven't believed in free will since i don't know i was 25 or whatever you look at people like that and they are exactly as highly ethical as for people who believe very strongly in free will mm and there's a, a intensely studied parallel to that oh i don't believe in god anymore oh my god that person's just gonna run amok because they can't be held responsible and you look at people who are stridently reflectively atheistic and they have just as high of ethical standards as people who are highly stridently religious in their attributions to how the world works because in both cases you have people who are thinking long and hard about the tough questions okay so people are unlikely to run amok um but you still have that problem of what about the subset of like totally dangerous people are you gonna have murderers running around mm -hmm. the answer is no obviously not if you don't believe in free will you don't say that murderers should be allowed to roam the streets and likewise from the meritocracy end we're not saying that oh when you turn out to have a brain tumor they're going to pick a random person off the street to be your brain surgeon because oh we're trying to get rid of meritocracies yeah you got to protect people from dangerous stuff and you got to protect people from like having stuff done by people who aren't competent to do difficult things yes yes and we know this and we could run a world in which we are kept safe from dangerous people without invoking any sort of like moral responsibility mm. for example you get some like airline airplane pilot who's got a nose cold they have a sinus infection and the rule is if you're taking anything like you know benadryl or something that makes you drowsy you're not allowed to fly you're allowed to do your job for x number of days if you have somebody who has chronic 
treatment-resistant epilepsy so that at some points the meds stop working and they have some seizures. Every state has a rule on their books as to how many months or years you now need to be seizure-free on the new meds before you can drive again. And nobody is blaming that person. You've got a five-year-old. Your kid has a nose cold. And the law is, please keep him home from kindergarten if your kid is sneezing, because they'll get everybody else sick. So you keep your kid home, but you don't make it a moralistic thing. You don't tell the kid they have a rotten soul and they can't play with their toys today because they got a dangerous to cold that could you know, damage society. In all those cases, you have what's sort of a leading model to a retribution system which is a quarantine one. Constrain the person from being dangerous anymore, just like you would take a car whose brakes don't work and you know you don't drive the car anymore. Keep it in the garage. Constrain the person, but don't constrain them one inch further than that than what's needed. You don't go in every day with a sledgehammer and hit the car over the hood because it deserves to be punished for having its brakes fail. You don't moralize about it. You don't preach to the car. And most of all, you do what is sort of a tenant of all public health sort of thinking is you also do some research as to how do you wind up having people who are dangerous to society? Where do nose colds come from? Where does antisocial violence come from? You have to also try to figure out the root causes so there's fewer of those in the future. And we do that all the time. We do it all the time with our five-year-olds. We have subtracted free will out of the fact that we have to protect five-year-olds from our sneezing kid. And the world is a like better place because the kids don't get like nose colds. And we figured out how to do it so you're not moralizing to your sneezing child. Right. We've subtracted responsibility out and things have been okay. Mm. So I'll, I'll present an argument that I have a feeling some of our listeners would like, and I'll, I'll allow you to pick it apart, as I'm sure you will. And, but it would kind of go something like this, right? You have two individuals that appear to emerge out of somewhat similar or identical backgrounds, let's say, in very difficult circumstances, right? And I know, I know how you're going to probably work through this, but, <laughs> but how two people that appear to come from such similar places, let's say a place of abuse and trauma or a history of, of substance abuse in a family, how they can emerge as almost two totally different people, right? As if they, they are different, as if they, they were just set on different paths, and one ends up, say, committing a murder, or one does not, or one maybe has what we would think of as enough self-control to not pull the trigger when the time arrives. Um, how do you make sense of that? Because I think that's the story that a lot of people still want to believe in, right? That there's still, and here I am trying to shove free will in there somewhere, but, but that's, I'll, I'll lay that out for you, and how, how would you respond to it? Well, this is, this is the other domain where most people believe in free will. And I should say more than 90% of like card carrying philosophers, according to the polls, believe in free will. This is the other domain where it just makes no, so much uh -huh. sense. It makes perfect sense. The first one was you have an intent and you order, you know, vanilla ice cream instead of Rocky Road. And that feels like you just exercised free will. Right. Where did that intent come from? The other one is when you look at the striking exception, you look at the person with the rotten 
rotten abuse of all of that. And somehow they had the tenacity, somehow they had the backbone, the gumption to work and work and resist and all of that. And look at how they turned out. And it's so damn inspiring. Mm. In the same way that it's exactly the opposite, that when we look at somebody who has every possible privilege and advantage, and the word we always use, they go and squander their yeah. opportunities in self-indulgence. You look at those, and there's this huge seductive like pull towards this dualism to make this like leapfrog over the Grand Canyon and say, oh, attributes some things you were just handed and yeah you had no control over but ooh what you did with them did you show discipline did you show did you rise above your circumstances that's made of something else that's made of fairy dust that's made of calvinist you know praiseworthy horatio alger stuff and it's this notion that our natural attributes yeah they're made of biology, but what we do with it is not. What we do with it is made out of the same biology. And it has much to do with the part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which gives you self-control and emotion regulation and long-term planning. And how do you wind up getting two people who are both raised in adversity and they come out with very different capacities for self-regulation? Luck, mm. luck. That's all there is. One of them lucked out and had a teacher at one point who like was able to spot their potential. One of them listened to the right sermon on the right morning. One of them had a parent who who was the right example of how they really wanted to grow up to be or how they wanted to grow up to be exactly the opposite. And, you know, the micro events, it's very easy, say, to look at a singular event. You got somebody on the defendant's table who like has committed a whole bunch of murders and it's clear why they've done this. When they were eight, they had a car accident that destroyed their prefrontal cortex and they were in a coma for months. And ever since then, they can't regulate their behavior mm -hmm. and they're a broken machine and they're terrifying as hell. And constraining them big time is what you need to do. Um, but it was involitional. It was an organic impairment on their part and a heartening percentage of juries would say, yeah, we know what ha this thing happened to them. And as a result, they they can't be held responsible for that. They didn't have control. That's easy for us. But when you then look at the more standard case of how somebody turns out, it is so much harder. Yeah car accident that blew out their frontal cortex mm. that I can deal with is a very dramatic singular cause but it is so much harder for us to instead have to accept that there's a gazillion microscopic little like spider web thick little threads of things that turned you into you that there were just endless of them instead of this one big gigantic car accident or one, e there's distributed causality. There's a billion different causes. Half of them we don't understand. Half of the other half science only discovered in the last 10 years. And it's awfully hard to see that you put all those little microscopic threads of determinism together and collectively it's as deterministic as like a sledgehammer of a car accident. Yeah. It's much harder to imagine that actually something different happened to those two people.
Yeah. And you said something I think that I, I have just noticed hosting this show or anecdotally, and you're the probably the only person that can explain why this is, but there really does appear to be some aspect of the way we function, function psychologically, which is like we hate nuance or we hate multiple complexities when we're looking at the world. And like when I try to understand the criminal justice system, we've now at least said there are some people who are psychologically unfit to you know, be held responsible for their actions. But like, it's still dualistic. It's them and us in that way. Yep. There's some kind of line that we have created. And I, it, it does seem to me to resonate as true that we don't want to actually look at much more beyond that. Maybe we're trying to move in that way. And I know that lawyers will say like in sentencing, this is when you try and bring up these kind of deterministic arguments. That, yep. That's the time to try and say that there was a more complicated causal you know, a chain of events here. But, but it is interesting, right, that, that we are averse to that type of thinking. And that's absolutely the case. What, what we have is we're capable of, in general, dealing with edge cases, mm. edge examples. Yeah, their frontal cortex was blown out, yeah, during the mitigation phase after they were convicted after 10 minutes of the jury thinking about it. Yeah, maybe that could come into sentencing now at this point. Yeah. But singular causes are so much easier for us to make sense of classic this was this was work done by by Tversky and Kahneman two psychologists Tversky didn't live long enough to get his Nobel Prize but Kahneman did for just showing all sorts of cognitive distortions we have in our heads heuristics that steer us up the wrong way at times sit somebody down and say okay we got this world where there's two diseases that account for all the deaths each one accounts for 50% of the deaths. Mm. You've got a choice. You could come up with an amazing medical invention discovery, which cures all the cases of one of the diseases, or a medical insight that can cure half the cases of each of the two diseases. Which would you prefer? They're absolutely the same. All of one half versus a quarter plus a quarter is the exact same intervention curing all of the ones of one case versus half of each of the two are exactly the same at the end but about 75 percent of people have a strong preference for give me something singular give me a way to cure this disease entirely so i can cross it off my list we like singular causality because right. it's a whole lot easier and at times of stress people come up with much, much more singular attributions. Oh, this happened because there's a God. Right. Oh, this happened because those people, they're just like that. They've always been, they always will be, and that's just constitutional in them. Single easy attributions is what we do when we face the scariest things and when we are our most stressed and least uh, able to stop for a second and say, wait, 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 does that actually make sense? Yeah. So then we've, I think, looked at the criminal justice system a bit here. We could go further with that. But now, now help us more privileged people like myself, the white guy who's trying to look for meaning in his life and thinking that he's trying to be successful and be more, you know, like, I'm also trying to live with some of these arguments as to like, how do I feel worthy of anything that I've done as somebody who feels like they've worked hard to get this show on NPR and blah, blah, blah. Like, can you, can you kind of address that situation? Um, Which is that a lot of us are out here doing the best that we can (laughs) and trying to find some meaning in our actions. So what, what would you say to that? Well, this is where 
Um, not of much use because this is where I personally hit a wall. Um, for us who could sit around and say, well, you know, I got a, I got a college education I could potentially brag about. I, I, I can put meat and potatoes on the table right. because of my salary. I should feel entitled as a result of that. All the realms in which we feel entitled because of something we worked hard for, damn, in college, my roommate went to every single falling down drunk party and every single time I stayed in and studied instead, that doesn't get me any credit, any sense of having earned how things turned out. And the answer is no, it hasn't. And this has an immediate sort of instrumental societal implication, which is you don't deserve anything more than any other person does. You are not entitled to have your needs considered more than anybody else. There's no line in which you should be able to cut in in the front of the line because of who you turned out to be in terms of your accomplishments. You're stop being entitled. Okay, so that's great. That's like that Sunday morning sermon realm. Um, but what we're dealing with instead is like if you have the privilege to reflect on the fact that we're biological machines, just like every other species, but we're the only species that could know that we are biological machines and reflect on it with respect to how things have turned out good for you. And that's totally demoralizing. It's this huge existential void of maybe like, not only don't I deserve to be the CEO, but there's no purpose in life. And where do I find? And what I sort of wind up concluding is if this is your response to there being no free will, exactly as you said, you're one of the lucky ones. You're one of the privileged ones. And for you, you've just got to deal with the fact that like entitlement is not all that becoming and all these things. And like you search for meaning elsewhere, the only meaning you could find is that even though we're biological machines, pain is painful. So it's a good thing that there's less of it. That's great. That's it. But for most people, this is great news. They're not sitting there saying, oh my God, do I not really deserve the love that I found? Do I not really deserve like the amazing Sally? Do I not really deserve the fact that I have clean drinking water mm -hmm. from where I happen to be born? Um, but for most people it's, oh, <laughs> not only isn't there witchcraft, you're not self-indulgent if you're overweight. Depression is not a disease of self-indulgent failing to get some backbone. Schizophrenia is not caused by women who hate their children and psychodynamically to pickle them in toxicity and produce schizophrenia. Oh, antisocial crime is virtually like entirely predictable by each step of childhood adversity that somebody went through that they had no control over, etc., etc. By the time you were a third trimester fetus, the socioeconomic status of your mother was already influencing your brain development, and this has been demonstrated. You go through all of that, and for most of the world, the fact that there's no free will is incredibly liberating mm. because we run this world on these myths about that it's a just world and people get what they deserve and people don't because they had no control over it. And for most people, this is wonderfully liberating. Mm. Like when they began to figure out like, 
autism is caused by an incredibly like complicated, like still murky neurogenetics and fetal environment. Once people figured it out, it's not caused by mothers who were incapable of loving their child. There was even a technical term for it. If you were a refrigerator mother, that's the explanation for your child's autism. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women who were told by the best minds out there that had been suckered into one version of a myth of free will saying, what caused your child's autism? You did, because unconsciously you're really incapable of expressing love. That's what everyone was taught until people, oh, it's a biological disorder. There's no mothering free will that went into it. And that's an incredibly humane thing. It's incredibly humane when people figure it out that this kid who's having trouble learning how to read, it's not because they're lazy and unmotivated. It's biology. They've got something screwy with the, the circuitry, the wiring of neurons in one layer of one part of their cortex. And as a result, their brain has trouble telling the difference between different closed looped letters. And you confuse B, confuse B and P. And you have one version of dyslexia. Mm. Oh, it's not that they're lazy. They've got a biological explanation. And as soon as that became apparent, not only did it make it easier to figure out, okay, what are ways in which kids with this type of dyslexia can learn to read more easily? You understand root causes and can construct ways of addressing it. But it is a hell of a lot better world than the, you know, oceans of people who, because of their learning differences, grew up to think, I'm not very smart, mm. or there's something wrong, or I'm very self-indulgent, or I'm just not disciplined, or whatever. And you see these liberation stories of people saying, damn, it wasn't until I was 40 that I got the dyslexia diagnosis, and suddenly all sorts of pieces fell into, sh into place about how life turned out to be a lot harder for me than I had hoped for. I only wish they had figured that out when I was in second grade. Mm. This is liberating. One of the takeaways that we, that we pull from this and that I'm, I'm hearing in what you say as well is that it's, the determinism is not just a road to nihilism, but maybe it, it's, it's a road to empathy into complexity, into um, taking a moment of reflection to look around at, like, maybe, you know, the world works in a slightly different, more uncomfortable way than I wanted to notice before, and that, that there should be some, some reckoning in that. Or again, I come back to that word, compassion or empathy. Does that, does that sound right to you? That's, you know, God help me, shoot me if I use a phrase like this too often for wokeness sake, all of that. But, you know, on a certain level, all of those genes and hormones and neurons and all of that is one version of social justice because you, mm. you follow the implications. And, yeah, we have a world in which we treat some people really badly um, for stuff they had no control over and other people get second homes up in the mountains and you know all the versions of that absolutely this is about compassion it's really hard to subtract out entitlement and subtract out judgment and to realize that hating somebody makes as little sense as hating a volcano that erupts because 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 of all of this stuff it's incredibly hard 
at least save that for the times where it really matters, when you're making a harsh judgment or when you're making a very self-congratulatory judgment, do the extra work then. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be joined by Stanford's Robert Sapolsky. He's the author of the new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for for working through all this with us and um, exploring the ideas. Thanks for having me on. This This was really stimulating. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can join us on our Facebook group and join the conversation. You can also find me and contact me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. And there you'll find weekly videos and a whole lot of other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. You're listening to Life Examined on your public radio station, KCRW. Thanks as always for joining us. And we'll see you again soon. Take care.